Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Today I'm discussing weight loss resistance with Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Dr. Kieran is leading by example because she's an OBGYN who lost a life-changing 100 pounds of weight and healed herself of chronic disease by addressing the root cause of her issues. This personal transformation in turn caused a professional transformation and she left her OBGYN practice in 2011 to pursue helping other women heal with this revolutionary type of natural medicine after becoming fellowship trained in anti-aging, metabolic and functional medicine. Dr. Kieran has a book, Cracking the Bikini Code, Six Secrets to Permanent Weight Loss Success, and we're going to be touching on some of these points today. She also has a virtual bootcamp program based on the book, and she's been featured in numerous podcasts and summits, and on NBC, Fox, Reader's Digest, The Huffington Post, First for Women, and Best Self Magazine. She's also got a podcast called Her Brilliant Health Radio, and she offers interviews with inspiring and insightful experts in functional medicine, for women desiring to heal and achieve optimal health naturally. And in this episode, we discuss Dr. Kieran's weight loss journey in more detail and what she found to be the biggest setbacks and roadblocks for her. The biggest causes of weight loss resistance, including thyroid issues, stress, even environmental toxins, whether, I, whether she thinks calories or hormones are more important for weight loss, and how the food industry influences our cravings and food choices. So let's get into the episode with Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Hi Kieran, I'm so excited to chat with you today about weight loss resistance, but before we dive into this complex subject, could you start off by introducing yourself to my audience and then letting them know a bit about your weight loss journey? Oh, so grateful to be here, Vivian, with you. And I'm excited to talk about weight loss resistance because it certainly was a part of my story. I was a successful OBGYN. And yet from the outside, I looked like I had the perfect life, but I was really kind of dying on the inside. At one point, I weighed 243 pounds. I suffered with several health problems, including chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia. I had depression and anxiety. My hair was falling out. I looked and felt 20 years older than I was, and I had no sex drive at all. And here I am a board certified OBGYN, and I'm supposed to know more about women's health than anyone else. And yet I couldn't figure out what was wrong, and I couldn't fix it. And so I also saw the same problems in my patients. And I really got to this point where I was breathing in and out and I was taking up space on the planet, but I became so hopeless to ever live a different life that I actually thought if this is life, what life is going to be, I don't want to live it. 
And then, thank goodness, I discovered something called functional medicine, which addresses the root cause of disease and health problems and weight problems. And I used it to uncover what was preventing me from losing weight and healing myself from all these disorders. And in short order, my patients started seeing me losing weight, looking younger, feeling better. And they said, well, what are you doing? Because we want that. And I started doing it with them. So in 2011, I retired from traditional OBGYN practice, and I've practiced holistic type of functional medicine ever since. And what were the key factors involved in your journey? So we know for some people, well, with everyone, it's quite bio-individual. It depends on like family history, where your genetic weak links are. But what did you find were like the top three or five key things that really helped or the three to five potential root causes? Well, I break it down into four main causes. Genetics really plays only about a five to 10% role in any health conditions that you have. Um, and so really it has to do with the inputs. And what I consider those four main inputs are hormone balance or imbalance, toxicity, which is inflammation, and nutritional deficiency, and then what I call the intangible, so mental, emotional, spiritual health. Right. Yeah. I really want to dive into all of those things. That's so important. I think your journey, it totally resonates with the people listening. I can imagine them right now. Like, yeah, that sounds like me, like keep going, tell me all the answers that I need. Um, But with weight in particular, I think there's a lot of body dysmorphia and distorted perceptions on a healthy weight. So women are trying to get to this unachievable goal a lot of the time based on what's shown in media and in the magazines and on Instagram. So how do people actually know when they are at a healthy weight or if they're just striving for something that's not achievable? Well, there are tables available that you can look up based on your height and your bone structure, what you should weigh. Uh, so those are a good guide. And so you, you can use those. It's ideal to have a body fat composition done. And there are lots of home-based scales you can buy now that will tell you your body fat percentage. And so that's often a good gauge. Um, BMI is not a great indicator um, because there can be some discrepancies. It's basically a height and weight type of calculation that gives you an output, but um, that's not the best. Really, if you can assess your body fat percentage, that's ideal. And there are even some more sophisticated scales. And I have a tool that I use in my office that will actually tell you muscle mass. And so you want to make sure your muscle mass is at a right level and your body fat. Um, But this is something because of body dysmorphia that you do want to make sure you're being appropriate in your weight loss goal. Yeah, you can't be comparing yourself to what you were when you were 15 and you're now 38. There's going to be changes. If you've had two kids, then you need to take that into consideration as well. So that's important to know. And I agree with the BMI thing. It's so out outdated and old-fashioned and people who may be very muscular and very lean they could still be clustered being overweight on the chart and they can be some of the healthiest people ever and otherwise you could be very lean and your BMI could be normal and you could be uh, have the fat on the inside so like the internal uh, visceral fat that's associated with all of the negative effects and what's the conventional approach to weight loss so They say to eat less, exercise more, 
but further than that in more extreme cases so things like the pharmaceutical drugs surgeries weight loss surgeries gastric bands what are your thoughts on that and what are the potential downsides the conventional approach is it's your fault because you eat too much and you don't move enough and that nothing could be further from the truth but yes those that's the conventional thought you just need to eat less they'll give you uh, kind of the Weight Watchers program where you eat from the same food group food groups in the in decreased amounts um, but really that doesn't address the root causes of why you have some of these issues that are causing you to be overweight in the first place. Um, and then there are medications, appetite suppressants, basically speed. Um, there's some antidepressants now that are used and other medications, fat blockers, things like that. But none of these address the root cause and the gastric bypass I think is the ultimate insult to the human body. Um, because <laughs> that is not the answer to address the root causes to cut out half your stomach or <laughs> rearrange your anatomy in some way um, and cause forced starvation, essentially. And this is why people, people ask me all the time, well, you lost 100 pounds, why don't you have skin hanging off everywhere? Well, because I did it the right way and I addressed the root causes, so my whole metabolism improved, my skin elasticity improved, and most of it shrunk back. Um, and this is one of the problems you see with people who have had gastric bypass, um, that they have the excess skin, they often get very sick afterwards, and we'll get into that, that has to do with the toxicity that's released. Um, and they also usually adopt other problems. So a lot of people who are overweight, or some people I should say, do have an addictive eating pattern. Well, if that's thwarted, then that addictive pattern will go into something else. And so there's a high rate of alcoholism and things like that in people who've had gastric bypass. So to my mind, the traditional approach to weight loss doesn't work. They say it's your fault, but it's not your fault because you don't know the truth. Yeah, and it's obviously not working, is it? We've had this these recommendations for decades now, and people are trying but they're failing and then they're told to just do it harder be more strict with the diet exercise more but people are sicker and fatter than ever really which um is surprising to some but what about calorie counting macronutrient balancing so like low carbohydrate diet high fat like how relevant do you think some of these things are or are you on the camp where you don't need to count calories or track anything you just need to eat real whole foods, and then your body will find that natural set point. So many methods of dietary manipulation, but if you look at the traditional dietary manipulations, they only have about a 6% success rate in helping people lose the weight to get to their ideal body weight and keep it off at two years, which is pretty dismal. Um, and so there are lots of different dietary manipulations. I, I'm not one who says that there's a blanket program for everybody. I think there is a lot of individual variability in what will work. And you've got to look at what root cause inputs people have so that you can then manipulate the diet. I will say in general that most people need to eat more plants, a, a generally plant-based diet. I'm not necessarily a proponent of all plant-based, maybe for short periods of time, but probably not in the long run, um, to manipulate the inputs. I'm not a huge one for calorie counting, although when people do want to lose weight rapidly, um, sometimes that can be effective. And I've worked with 500 calorie or 1,000 or 1,200 calorie diets, but it's not a long-term solution. It is a tool that you can use 
just like many tools you can use when it comes to health. I think that if you eat from healthy food, so from the earth in their original form as much as possible, not adulterated, not processed, and plants mostly, you really can get to a point where you don't have to count calories. And that's never been a huge part of my program. When I first started on this journey, I eliminated certain foods and I found out what foods I was sensitive to and eliminated those. And I really didn't count calories and I lost that weight. It was never about counting calories. Um, you know, the, the counting calories is really an illusion, you know, that we, we try to follow, but it, it's not about the calories. It's about where the calories are coming from, what they're made up of, what kind of energy the food has in it and micronutrient density. Um, and it's about these other inputs. It's about what's going on with your hormones determines how your body's going to handle that food. And um, that's huge. And what's going on with toxicity in your body and inflammation is going to determine how your body handles the calories in a food. So it, it just, it varies. And so I've never been a proponent of calorie counting per se. Yeah, and there's that common saying that there's a huge difference between 100 calories coming from like a chicken breast or some eggs compared to Skittles or M&Ms. They're going to act completely differently in the body, have a different hormonal response. And yeah, that's an important thing because you could be eating like the 100 calorie packs of snacks that people tend to go to, like the Slimming World things, which are classic. And if you look at other cultures or even like 50, 100 years ago, no one was calorie counting. It wasn't even a thing. And a lot of people managed to naturally keep their weight at a set point without just listening to the appetite um, regulation, moving the body, that can sometimes be skewed, can't it? Like appetite regulation. Could you talk a bit about that and maybe like leptin resistance and those types of things? Sure. So there are some hormones involved with regulating your appetite like leptin, and that really will become altered when you're, you're in a kind of artificially induced eating state. And so what do I mean by that? Meaning that you're eating based on external cues, not internal cues. You're eating because you see those commercials for those juicy hamburgers and so you want one or potato chips and so you want those and you eat them or you're eating on cues based on when our set times you're supposed to eat and standard foods that we eat. And so you're not listening internally to what your body is wanting and needing. Um, and I think that we've really become very disconnected from our bodies. Uh, and so we don't listen to, a lot of us don't even listen to when we need to go to the bathroom and defecate, right? Or urinate, we hold it, hold it, hold it because we're doing other things and because our society is so busy. Um, and then what happens is your body starts cutting off these signals and it even stops talking to you um, because you're not listening. And the same thing happens with our appetite. Um, so we really have a distorted way that we go about determining what it is that we need to eat to nourish our bodies. And so part of what I'm a proponent of is rekindling that connection between you and your body that lets you know what your biologic urges are going to the bathroom when you need to go to the bathroom, listening to that, eating when you 
feel hungry and stopping eating when you are satiated. Many of us, you know, we learn to clean our plates because our parents taught us to clean our plates and to be wasteful is not a good thing because their children starving in certain parts of the world. Well, you can't not eat enough to feed the children starving in mm -hmm. other parts of the world. So really rekindling that connection to yourself and understanding your internal urges. I think that we really have gotten to this point of we've abdicated governance of our body's urges to higher authorities like doctors um, who tell us what we need to eat and when we need to eat well and if they don't mention it then we think it's not a, a, an important issue um, but really getting back to the basics of listening to what your body is saying and feeding that attention and it can be really difficult can't it especially with the advertisements that are on tv and the way that certain foods are formulated to make them addictive, to make you want the, the second bag of chips and the colours that they use and the, the marketing terms and even the sounds that they use in some of these adverts. It's crazy. There's actual scientists. I don't think people realise this, but they have like scientists who are in the food, these big corporations to make you more addictive and to make you a lifelong customer. Right. Blows my mind. Yeah, many people are aware of how Madison Avenue really exploits your innate preferences for salt, sugar, and fat to get the right combination, and they call it this the sweet point mm -hmm. um, in terms of sugar. Um, so they will manipulate foods to get that point where it keeps you craving it and wanting it, wanting it more and more. So, for instance, Starbucks people has been booming business and people love Starbucks. Well, what are they addicted to? They're addicted to the dairy because that in it, um, stimulates the morphine endorphin system in the body um, and sugar and there's fat also in there and so and the caffeine so it's really an addictive stance that people are having to things like starbucks lattes um and madison avenue knows this and there there's some great um documentaries out there on how uh, madison avenue and how food companies really manipulate the flavor of their foods they'll inject um various food and coloring into for instance chicken with a chain that i won't mention uh to make it very highly addictive and and some people say well i can't eat just one and you know it's just you just always want it um and the proliferation of ad advertisements for these foods really keeps it foremost in your mind so your your biology is being manipulated by industry to make you want to eat and repeatedly eat foods that are not in your best interest so maybe stop and think before you pull up the car and go into starbucks like do i want to promote this do i want to feed into these behaviors or do i want to promote my own health and um, not let someone dictate my brain chemistry because that's really what they're doing yes. and i think people maybe had the experience with things like pringles that once you pop you can't stop i think there's a book as well called the dorito effect i might be wrong on that one but i'll link there's one that's talking about this and um the sugar salt fat combination and how that really lights up the brain just evolutionarily so that could be a good one i'll link that in the show notes for people to look into and previously you were saying about maybe doing some testing to figure out foods that you're sensitive to or what your own root causes are for weight loss resistance. What are the most common tests that you see to be most um, 
relevant for your your patients? Well, I, I think that hormones are the foundation and there's seven main hormones that I look at in anyone who's having weight, weight loss resistance. And so those would, I would start with thyroid, insulin, cortisol, DHEA, and then the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So the first four are really your main metabolic drivers, and they determine how your body handles your two main fuel sources, which are glucose and fat. And how your body handles those and how your body manages them is going to, for a, to a large part, determine your satiety or lack thereof and your cravings to eat. Um, so that's where I start. And then the sex hormones really play a huge role in men and women, both. And so looking at those, they're not just about sex. Some people think they're just about fertility or sex drive, but there you have more of those sex hormone receptors in the rest of your body, including your brain and central nervous system than you do anywhere else. And so really those need to be included also. So I really start by looking at those seven main hormones. And what about the way that we store our body fat? Does that tell you a certain thing about maybe which hormones are out of balance? So if someone stores a lot of weight around the abdomen or in their butts and hips and thighs, what does that say about the person? Yeah, so where your fat is is important. So if it's around your midsection, your abdomen, that more often has to do with cortisol imbalances and cortisol and insulin tend to kind of go together. Um, and if you have estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, it may be more around your hips and your buttocks um, in the lower area. And thyroid sometimes will be more in the top, not necessarily, but a lot of times it will be. So that distribution can kind of give you a clue as to what hormone imbalances you might have. Yeah, it's not indicative. Obviously, you need to look at symptoms and then get some lab work at the same time, but could just be a good um, a good insight especially if it's a new symptom like I never used to have an issue with my weight but all of a sudden I have this spur tire around my abdomen that's a classic sign are you going through a major stress at the moment um, those types of things and with our hormones as well what happens during perimenopause and menopause that can commonly lead to the weight gain um, and the distribution issues at that time yeah, so around about 30, the age of 35 to 40, um, a lot of women or most women start having a decline in ovarian hormone production of estrogen and progesterone. It's about 50-50, which is testosterone. And what you'll see is typically estrogen will start going up and progesterone starts coming down. And estrogen is the weight gain, water retention, anxiety, PMS type of hormone. And progesterone is the antidote. It's the anti-anxiety, anti-depression, weight loss, sleep well, happy hormone. And so what you have is this divergence where estrogen is relatively going up, progesterone is relatively going down. So you enter that perimenopause around the menopause state. And then at menopause, the ovarian production of hormones typically um, of estrogen and progesterone goes down to zero. And so that's the final act. But one thing I think it's important for everyone to understand is people kind of see menopause as this discrete category that doesn't relate to all the other fertility stages throughout life. And what I think it's important for everyone to understand is that throughout your life, you're either in a state of hormonal repletion 
or you're in a state of hormonal imbalance. And that imbalance can have different appearances. But when you're talking about estrogen and progesterone, it's the levels of each and the ratio between the two that are going to determine the symptoms. So around from when you go to through menarche um, in your younger years and get your period through your fertility years, perimenopause, menopause, whether you have PCOS, fibroids, endometriosis, all of these hormonally related female problems that we can have, you're in some aspect of imbalance in those hormones. And so I really like women to see it as a continuum. And I see women in their 20s and 30s frequently who have hormones like a menopausal woman frequently because they're on hormonal suppression with birth control pills or other hormonal um, implants and injections, things like that. Uh, and so I, I think that really kind of destigmatizing it and that menopause is separate. It's something I don't need to worry about for decades. It's not really the case. It, you could be having the same imbalances now. True, exactly. And the listeners know that I love progesterone. I probably mention it every podcast episode that we do. It's just so important for every system of the body, but definitely to offset the negative impacts of um, estrogen or estrogen as well. Um, and then with hormones, why do our hormones go out of whack? So why do you see these women in their 20s and 30s struggling with raging estrogen dominance or estrogen deficiency like a, a menopausal woman what are the main drivers i know there's probably hundreds but what are the most common that you see so great question well i'd say number one is hormonal suppression with artificial hormones so synthetic hormones like the birth control pill i frequently see women they're having all kinds of symptoms whether it's low sex drive um hair falling out fatigue um, and they just don't feel like themselves. Maybe they have depression and anxiety. That's huge. And when I check their hormones, they have the profile of a menopausal woman. And a lot of people don't realize exactly what these artificial hormones are doing to their body. So it's shutting off your female hormone system, which is exactly kind of what menopause is. And so it doesn't replace you in a way that you function like a normal fertile woman. Um, so I'd say that's one of the number one causes. And then the other um, imbalances are usually not a menopausal picture, but one of what you typically see that drives the most common female problems like endometriosis, fibroids, ovarian cysts, breast cysts, things like that, um, has to do with estrogen excess and progesterone deficiency. And so estrogen excess is driven by several factors. I'd say number one is that your body has to detoxify everything it makes. So even though estrogen is healthy for you, you're supposed to make it and then you're supposed to dispose of it. And your body disposes of it through the liver, dumps it into the gastrointestinal tract, and it's supposed to go out in your poop. Well, how many people do you know who don't poop every day? It's millions of mm -hmm. women, right? Constipation is rampant. Well, when the estrogen that's supposed to go out in the toilet sits in your gastrointestinal tract, your body reabsorbs that estrogen and puts it back in circulation. Well, what ends up happening is you're making estrogen, you're not disposing of it, levels go up, 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 and you just get this high estrogen level. But also, 
in our envir environment, we come in contact with a lot of xenoestrogens, which are environmental chemicals that act like estrogens in the body, and phytoestrogens that come from plants like soy. And so xenoestrogens, for instance, come from phthalates, from plastic bottles that we drink out of. And so you just have this additive effect of estrogens. And if you're not getting rid of them properly, there are also a lot of genetic defects in the liver that will prevent people from properly getting rid of estrogens. So you get this very high level of estrogen and the progesterone then also can start going down relatively. So you could have a normal level of, level of progesterone, but you have such high estrogen, it no way can balance it. And that's where you get these estrogen dominant conditions, like we mentioned fibroids, heavy painful periods, um, clots on your period, um, endometriosis, things like that. And do you ever um, recommend anything to increase progesterone or is it always the most effective to bring down that estrogen? Well, number one is bring down the estrogen. Um, you definitely don't want too much. You've got to detoxify excess estrogen. So number one, stop the things from coming in that are contributing to that, the xenoestrogens, phytoestrogens. And number two is detoxify whatever's in the body. So get your poop moving so you can take out the trash every day. That's what I say. Um, and there are uh, botanicals you can take and nutrients that will help rev up those liver enzymes so you can get rid of them. Um, and adding fiber is great because it will help to bind those detoxed estrogens in the stool and get it out of you. So that's number one, but there are things you can do to increase progesterone naturally, um, particularly if you're in your 20s and 30s and you still have good ovarian reserve, meaning you've got lots of healthy follicles available. There are botanicals like Vitex, for instance, that you can use to improve the quality of ovulation, which will improve the progesterone output after you ovulate at mid-cycle to balance out that estrogen. As your ability to have good quality egg and ovulation decreases with increasing egg age starting around 35, 40, then sometimes the botanicals don't work as well. And you may have to come in with a progesterone um, that's biologically similar to what your body naturally produces, but it's given from exogenously from the outside. So you can use a cream or sometimes I'll prescribe um, slow release uh, tablets, depending on, like I said, everybody's individual. And then of course at menopause, your ability to make progesterone in your ovary pretty much goes away. And so usually some type of bioidentical hormone replacement is needed. Are there any specific foods that you love to recommend Again, with people's different sensitivities may not work for you, but are there any like just general foods that you love to recommend? So that's a great question because I know there are a lot of people out there saying, well, you can eat this smoothie to balance your hormones or do it, you know, and it depends. Like if you're in menopause, you, you, you can't necessarily eat enough to, and actually brings up an interesting story. I had a patient 
and who was in menopause. And this is before I um, discovered functional medicine when I practiced traditional medicine. And she had heard that soy was great for menopause. So she went out and she got these kind of soy extract tablets and she was taking a lot of them, let's say. And she came in and she said, Dr. Karen, my breasts are just so full and they feel like they're gonna explode. And I feel like I'm in PMS. And you know, at the time, because I practiced mainstream medicine, I didn't necessarily know to check uh, check her hormone levels because we—that's not what we do as mainstream physicians. Um, but I told her stop doing that. But it, there are some foods like soy and yam, things like that, that have high levels of progesterone. Um, generally, if you just eat them, you can add them to your diet. It's going to give you some help. Um, but in the long run, like if you're menopausal, it's probably not going to be enough to just eat the foods. Um, I think that what we talked about before, going to more of a plant-based, holistic, unprocessed diet with organic foods is going to improve every hormonal imbalance that you have. Um, but and so I think that overall improves it. I don't know that there are specific foods that are going to allow you to completely correct on hormonal imbalance in terms of your sex hormones. Yeah, sometimes diet isn't enough, is it? Like people are like, what food can I add in? What food can I take out? They perfect the diet, they're eating organic, um, the best quality that they can afford, but maybe they are stressed out their mind or they're not sleeping and they're missing some of these other lifestyle driven things. But right. on the subject of diet with food sensitivities, I see sometimes people eating foods that are sensitive to. Sometimes they can be really healthy foods and they that's causing an inflammatory reaction in the body. And that's sometimes what's leading to weight loss resistance. So can you talk about how food sensitivities can drive inflammation and how that affects your weight? Sure. And that's the next category that I usually go to after hormones is toxicity in the body, which is inflammation. And that can come from inside the body. It can come from outside the body. So inside the body, it generally comes from the gastrointestinal tract, from your mouth all the way down to your anus. And um, a big part of that is the foods you're eating that, like you say, may be healthy for everyone in general, because they have a high micronutrient content, for instance, but may not be healthy for you because your immune system may recognize it as foreign and bad and start attacking it. So for instance, when I first did my food sensitivity test, I came back for high sensitivity to things like cauliflower, almonds, peaches, and blueberries. Well, those are healthy foods, but my body was reacting to them and that was causing inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract so I had to get rid of them. Doesn't mean I have to get rid of them forever, um, but for a period of time, you can clean up the gut health in general and then you may be able to add them back, but that's something that a lot of people don't realize could be going on for them. I had a similar experience when I first started my health journey. My goal was to clear up my acne and get my period back and I was reading all about bone broth and fermented foods and um more of these fermented like sauerkraut and kimchi and i realized that i had a huge histamine sensitivity and yeah. it caused a lot of inflammation and fluid retention in the body and then when i realized i cut them all out in a week my skin was clear and i dropped a ton of water retention so again these foods that are promoted for gut health I was thinking that I was doing a good thing. I was thinking that my skin reactions getting worse, 
the itching that I was experiencing was like a detox or die off reaction and I was trying to push through but everyone's very different yeah and the histamine issue is big I just did a podcast episode um, with Dr. Brooke who talks a lot about histamines and hormones Mm -hmm. a lot of people I mean mainstream doctors don't necessarily aren't aware and don't talk about this Uh, but I think it's important for women to understand that the same histamine issues that give you seasonal allergies um, can also and can affect your gut and affect your hormones interact with your hormones and estrogen is a stimulator of histamine and prevents its degradation so it can cause this very high surge of histamine and that actually can outpicture in female symptoms that we've been talking about so it's something that you always want to be aware of and getting rid of the food you're sensitive to is key because they can trigger histamine and that's part of how they mediate their effect Um, but like you said some of the fermented foods are very high in causing histamine release. And so even though they're quote unquote healthy, they may not be healthy for you. Definitely. And it works both ways as well, doesn't it? So the estrogen increases histamine and then histamine increases estrogen in the body. So if your symptoms tend to get worse in a pattern, so cyclically around ovulation, around the week before your period when estrogen is the highest, that could sometimes point towards a histamine problem. Not always, but maybe maybe a sign for some people to look into. But then even from there, the answer isn't just to cut out all of these foods forever. It's to look a little bit deeper. So there could be some genetic components, issues with that DAO enzyme in the gut. But for me, it was linking back to things like environmental toxins, mold even, um, heavy metals. So could you talk a bit more about maybe some other environmental toxins like heavy metals, pesticides, and even breast implants. So like more surgical problems. Right. So we look at the internal toxicity, gastrointestinal tract, and food sensitivities are huge. Also parasites, abnormal bacteria, fungi, those can also contribute to that. Mercury amalgam, so the internal, but then the external chemicals that come from outside Um, can contribute to this. So like you said, um, you mentioned mold. So mold is extremely common um, in our environments. I know I live in Southeast United States. It's very wet. And so mold can grow. There are flood areas. And oftentimes you can't see it. You can't smell it. It's behind the walls. And so unless you open up the walls, you won't necessarily see it or know that it's there. So mold is huge and you can have uh, every symptom you can think of. Um, And so it's very nonspecific. And, you know, as a mainstream doctor, when I practiced it, you know, we weren't taught about checking for this or that it's an issue, right? Um, But now as a functional doctor, I know that it's a huge issue. So we've got to look at mold exposure. We've got to look at chronic viral infections. That's another big issue. So a lot of viruses, there's some viruses that you get, you know, maybe the rotavirus and that you'll have symptoms from it and then your body gets rid of it and it goes away. But a lot of viruses, once we get them, we always have them. For instance, the varicella chickenpox virus. And so it lives in our nerve roots and it will come out at times of stress in something like shingles. Uh, But sometimes you don't get that external visual to know that you have it. And it just may be replicating and 
and targeting and inflaming your immune system on a low level on a continuous basis so that it's not enough that you have any overt symptoms that anyone would say, oh, you've got varicella virus, but your immune system knows and it's being triggered, 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 and we'll oftentimes check antibody levels and you'll see the IgG, which is one branch of your immune system, um, typically in someone who's had a certain virus will go down to a quote unquote normal level, but you'll see it be higher in people who have this going on. Like I just talked with a patient yesterday and um, we checked her for a bunch of different viruses. Mycoplasma was one of them and her IgG was like 488. And so this is going on in the background and then she has a huge amount of inflammation. I checked inflammatory markers on her. We're also gonna check her for mold because she lived in a, a home that actually had known mold exposure. Um, so looking at the chronic viral infections um, and the molds are huge because these all interact and like you said, the histamine and estrogen interact, but the histamine also, if your immune system is triggered overall, you gotta look, are there other problems that are triggering it like molds and chronic viral infections? Um, Epstein-Barr would be another one that's huge. Um, are they, is it getting triggered overall? And that's why it's high. So if you just come in and try to, oh, we're just gonna knock down the histamine, well, that, that's probably not the answer. So I always like to say in functional medicine, we're like toddlers. We're always asking why. Why? <laughs> so the estrogen is high. Why? Oh, histamine's high. Why? You know, oh, there's mold. Why? You know, and just really trying to get to the root cause. That's really been pushed on me these past couple of months because I was really happy when I figured out that histamine was a problem for me. I was like, oh, I found the answer. This is it. I just need to cut out all of these foods and I'm fine. My skin's clear. I feel good. But then I was like, why do I need to keep taking these antihistamine supports? And why do I always have to support my detoxification and be so strict with my diet? So then the, being the bit of a, um, a bit of a geek that I am and the investigator and detective, I was like, no, I need to look further. I'm always telling people to look for the root cause but I'm not actually doing that in myself and for me looking into all of the research and how it can affect literally every every system of the body it could be linked to any symptom that you can think of there's just a lot of clients now who it's really opened my eyes to and these are the people who seem to be doing all the right things I've been working with them for many months and some things have improved but there's still that that roadblock that's getting in the way and I've come to believe that a lot of the times it is some of these environmental toxins viruses um things that would not be recognized at all by conventional medical doctors so if anyone's listening they're like oh I'll go and ask my doctor for a mycotoxin test or to um look at some of these mycoplasma infections please don't they're not gonna they're just gonna laugh you out of the office so just save that um save the trip yeah. and I don't want to and move past the breast implant illness one i want to go back to that so even mold can sometimes be found in the implants that's right isn't it right yes and i that's actually part of my personal mm, story really because um, i had them at at one point and um you know nobody knows exactly what is inside the breast implants um there's no obligation for the companies to publish it 
Um, but the coating is silicone, whether they are saline containing implants or they have this gel inside, which it's the gel, they don't have to say what's included in it. And um, the silicone has been shown to increase risk for certain types of cancers, um, leukemias in particular. Uh, and it has been associated with lots of chronic illnesses, although the official party line and the FDA investigations, they say that there's no causal link shown, but I can just tell you from personal experience having had them, um, and it's, it's a long story, but eventually I had them removed and they certainly contributed to um, health problems that I had. Um, mold has been found living in them. Um, and so that's a source of, um, of infection that's a chronic irritant to your immune system. Um, so, you know, silicone is, is an artificial chemical. And your body, um, a lot of these breast implants, will, your body will form a capsule around them. And it's seeing it as foreign, your immune system is reacting. And so that's what it's telling you. I'm the kind of doctor who, I don't tell you do this because I say, have your breast implants out because I say they're bad. I'm more the kind who's gonna educate you and give you information and then you can make a decision for yourself. Um, you actually can be tested in certain allergy centers, usually um, run by environmental health specialists, not your typical allergist, and they will check you for allergy to silicone. They'll by injecting you with the antigen in your skin, and that's what happened for me, and I had a reaction to it. And so if you have implants, that's something that you can do to maybe give yourself some objective evidence that I need to go through major surgery that, and the expense and the pain and all the risk of that to have it removed. You could get yourself skin tested for the silicone and see if you react to it. Um, but just the fact that in a lot of women, capsules occur tell, should tell you something that your body is not liking it and it's wanting it to wall to wall it off. Um, and having uh, the implants removed can be go a long way to significantly reducing your symptoms whatever they are, whether you have autoimmune disease or you're just having irritable bowel and brain fog, you're having mood disorders like depression, bipolar, anxiety, the symptoms can be so far ranging and nonspecific that you're not going to tie it to, oh, it might be those breast implants. Um, I've seen women with strange neurologic symptoms. They thought they had Lyme and because that's in the mainstream. So you, doctors will check for that. They end up with emergency room visits and then they end up with me and I'm like, you need to have your implants removed. And then when you have them removed for most women, there is a pretty significant decrease in these symptoms. It can happen rapidly for some like night and day, but I find for a lot of women, it's very gradual. And that was my story too. It really took, it takes your body time to detoxify what is left in the body after they're removed and they have to remove the whole capsule. But some of this um, material will actually be found outside in not only in the capsule, but in surrounding breast tissue. And so you wanna make sure that you give your body time properly detox using sauna and IV therapy and all of the tools that we have available. Mm -hmm. And there's a group on Facebook, if I'm not um, mistaken, that's got like hundreds of thousands of women in there. I think it's called Breast, Plant, Breast Implant Illness Awareness Group on Facebook. And that's 
the people who have been effective who have figured it out and realized it and I've, I remember a couple of years ago when I first heard about this because it was never on my radar and there was a woman who took a before and after picture so the day of her surgery her eyes were bloodshot her face was gray she looked very sick and then immediately post-operative so as soon as she woke up from the anesthesia her eyes were clear and you'd think that she'd be groggy and maybe not feeling great immediately but she looked like a different person that was just overnight and sometimes like you said it's that's more of an extreme improvement and that's great but for some people it can be a slow process but there could just be a constant stress and low grade um drain on the system and another roadblock that maybe isn't being investigated Yes, and I, I think we do need to highlight just the effect of environmental chemicals in general. I mean, probably the greatest insult is that you're taking this toxic uh, implant and putting it in your body. So it's like taking, you know, your dog's poop and putting it in the middle of your room. But the chemicals that we come in contact with every day from our cosmetics, our toiletries, our cleaning products, our laundering products, our home building practices, um, just in our furnishings, our carpeting. We, we are inundated in a sea of chemicals that our body has to get rid of. And it's interesting because when they do the toxicology studies before they approve these chemicals, and 85,000 new chemicals have been introduced in the environment since 1950, since the Industrial Revolution, they'll look at what they call the lethal dose 50 you know what is half of the dose that will the dose that will kill half of the rats right and then they'll take something below that and say it's safe for humans but the problem is nobody's looking at the additive and multiplicative effects of these toxins on the human body um, because those studies are probably very hard to uh, produce and they're very expensive and so who's going to pay for that and so there's kind of this laissez-faire attitude that um, well they're they're okay and most people handle so it, they, they don't kill you right away it's not like you know you go in your bathroom and you put on your makeup and use your cosmetics and toiletries and you die right <laughs> So it takes decades for these things to accumulate and cause health problems that will take you down, but they are contributors to all kinds of disease. And that's also been a part of my story and a part of the story of many of my patients. And so part of it, you know, your body, we're taught as mainstream physicians that one, all these chemicals adding up are not harmful. And two, your body takes care of it. Your liver takes care of it, no problem. And that's what I believed and because that's what I was taught. But now I know that nothing could be further from the truth. Your liver has a limited capacity to detoxify these hormones, just like your sanitation department in your city has limited capacity to process trash right so i don't know about in your neighborhood but in mine after christmas everyone puts their dead christmas trees and all their gift wrappings and boxes on the side of the road and then sanitation takes a while for them to catch up take all that stuff and get it to the sanitation part department and process it well the same thing is going on in your body it's like after christmas 
all the time. Um, and so these chemicals get backed up in your body and your liver cannot get rid of them. So number one, it taxes your liver, you get liver congestion, um, and then oh, that contributes to hormone imbalance because your body, your liver is what gets rid of excess hormones and your body can't process hormones when it's got you know volatile organic compounds that it's trying to get rid of. Um, like in artificial sense, that's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, and so <clears throat> it gets congested and backed up and can't get rid of it. And so one of the things your body does is it knows that these chemicals are always circulating in your body, they're going to make you sick. And so it takes those chemicals and it stores them away. Well, where does it store them away? In that's fact. A <laughs> surprise, surprise. People try to lose weight and I, I've seen some people that say, well, I work out every day and I hardly eat anything. And when I look at the evidence, that is really true. They're not losing weight. Why? Because your body knows that if it opens those fat cells and lets the fat out, all those chemicals are going to come out too. They're all, most of them lipophilic, fat loving. So that's a great place for the, your body to store them is with the fat. Um, and your body knows it's not going to open that fat cell. And this is why you'll see a lot of times with people who have gastric bypass, they get really sick in the first few months after they have it because it's forced starvation. The body has no choice but to open that and all the toxins come out and that you see them, they look gray and they just don't look healthy and they don't feel well. Um, and this is why. So I can, I'm getting off on a rant here, but no, I love I love your your tangent. It's yeah, it's really important because people they go through like a crash diet, like the um what is it the the lemonade, the one that Beyonce was doing, the cayenne pepper, maple syrup, lemon juice type of drink, master cleanse. Master yeah, cleanse. that they wonder why they feel absolutely terrible. Um, or they go on a juice cleanse and they feel like dying after three days, but they're like, no, it's just all of the um, caffeine withdrawals and I'll get over it. I'll get past the, the, the hump, but just do it the right way. Do it slowly like you did and your body will thank you in many different ways. That's what I think. And you mentioned earlier, another root cause of weight loss resistance could be the stress, emotional mindset piece as well. So people are, are, are aware that comfort eating is a big problem. And they probably realize that when they're stressed, when they're happy, upset, whatever the emotion is, they turn to food. How do you approach this with your patients? Right. So that that's the, the last piece is the mental, emotional, spiritual piece or the intangibles. And um, so part of it is mindset, but you can't mindset enough to overcome some bigger issues like your thoughts and feelings and beliefs. Um, so you can think positive thoughts, but to me, that's kind of putting a band-aid on it. You really have to get to root causes. So one of the biggest root causes with weight loss resistance, um, if you're actually doing the things you need to do and eating what you need to eat to balance your hormones, detoxify, things like that, then this is probably not a piece for you. But if you find, like I find with, I, I say about a third of my clients can follow it 100%, they take the information, they're good. But another third does it for a while and then they fall off and the other third can never really pick it up. Like they're just always eating you know, the Pringles or whatever, they can't stop. Um, 
then you have to look at the fact that, you know, if your hormones are imbalanced, it is going to cause you to crave salt and sugar, particularly if your cortisol is unbalanced, it's going to cause you to crave both of those in general. So you've got to address those hormone imbalances to get out the physiological aspect to the craving. But then when that's gone, you've got to look at the fact that food is a drug and you can medicate negative feelings with food. And a lot of people aren't aware that they're medicating negative feelings with food. Um, I have this great uh, example I'd love to give about this patient of mine who she had done the tools for about three months. She was doing great. She had lost like 30 pounds. She was feeling great. She had some other health issues, which were starting to correct. And then she would come in and she'd say, I, I've been eating, you know, chocolate cake. Okay. So I said, well, what's the last time you ate chocolate cake, which wasn't on her program. It's not that you can never have chocolate cake, but just not on a regular basis. And, and particularly not when you don't intend to. So if you're eating things, you, you set out the beginning of the day and you say, well, I'm going to eat this, this, and this, and that today. And then come to the end of the day, you say, well, I ate chocolate cake and that wasn't what I intended. Then there's something going on. So we sat down and really looked at it and I have this process I call the see it process. So you see yourself doing something not in your best interest that you didn't intend and then you examine it and you evaluate it. So what had happened? She had picked her son up from school and he had been very distraught because he hadn't done as well on an exam as he had wanted to. And he was just beating himself up and I'm stupid and I'll never get this. And he was going on and on. And she was trying to console him. You did your best. It's not a bad grade. You know, you'll do better next time. And all the things that we parents would say. And they got home and he would not be consoled. And next thing she knew, she's eating chocolate cake. Um, and so we examined it. Um, so we look at what happened and the, the thoughts and feelings before that. Well, what happened before that? The thoughts and feelings before that. So thought, feeling, action, thought, feeling, action, thought, feeling, action. It's a little bit of cognitive behavioral type of stuff in there. And then what is the belief underlying that she must have had in order to have that, those strings of thoughts, feelings, and actions? Well, we came down to that she believed that to be a good mother, which we all want to be, right? Uh, she had to be able to alleviate all distress in her child, right? <laughs> That's what it came down to. And then we could ask, do you really believe that or do you really want to believe that? And she said, no, I don't believe that. There's some things he's going to have to deal with himself and learn how to soothe himself. So once she could see that, she could say, chocolate cake is not the answer to me <laughs> believing that. And I don't choose to believe that anymore. I believe that he's going to learn these skills for himself. I can offer the nurturing and support that I can offer. And then it's up to him to figure it out for himself so that he'll be a healthy adult. So that's a part of it. But then for me, the larger overarching picture is the fact that we have this energetic body. We are vibrational beings. We are energy beings. And whatever you choose to call that energy that animates us from the day we're conceived or born until the day we die is kind of like the electricity that goes through the toaster that makes the toaster able to toast your bread, right? Toaster without electricity is just a toaster, right? Your body after you discard it, after you're, you pass on is just a body, but there's this life force that 
ener energizes you. And we can access that energetic system through things like acupuncture. Many people are familiar with that, the meridians that flow through the body. And there are these acupuncture points all along the meridians that actually access this energy body that actually forms kind of a net that is throughout your physical body, but we've now been able to measure the electromagnetic force of it several feet outside of the body. And so I kind of liken it to the structural framing of your home, right? They've got to put a wood frame in order to put walls and doors and ceilings. So that's the same in your body. This energetic framework is what sets the framework for your physical body. So in order to have a physical problem, you have to have an energetic imbalance, blockage, or correlate, or that physical problem could not exist. So most people are not aware of this. Most doctors don't talk about this, but this is something I've come to over decades of working in this field and research uh, and my own health and working with patients to know is a truism. And so we've got to get back to causes. Um, and so one of the examples I like to use is people with multiple chemical sensitivity, right? Your listeners are probably familiar with that, right? So that's where the body is reacting to all these chemicals in the environment. Well, what is an energetic correlate of that is that your mind is always reacting to people and things in your environment in a negative way and seeing them as threats, right? Mm -hmm. So if your mind has that energetic correlate of, oh, that's a threat, ooh, threat, 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 right? It's always in this defensive mode. That's the energy in your energetic body because your th thoughts and feelings are part of this spiritual energetic body. Well, your, your body then immune system that is designed to protect you and be your defense is constantly feeling threatened by chemicals and reacting to it. So you have to address the mental emotional part of that in order to heal it. And I know there's some brain retraining programs now you can actually use. Yeah. Yeah. They're very successful. People are on going to like five foods. They can't leave the house. They have to wear masks even in certain extreme cases and this brain retraining, so working on the fear centers, so the amygdala of the brain, quieting that down a little bit, they have dramatic results. So I'm going to be going through um, when I get out of the moldy environment, because you can't really, you can, but I want to wait until I've moved um, to start to retrain my brain, not to react to all of these foods that I am reacting to. And that just shows that the brain, it doesn't mean to say that it's all in your head. It's just that your brain's stuck in this loop and you need something to kick it out of that and calm the, the nervous system down and re-teach um, these patterns again and these neural pathways need to be connected in a more positive manner. So I'm that's something that I'm going through and I don't know if you use or recommend a similar, I think it's the Annie Hopper DNRS, yeah? Mm -hmm. Love that one. And I'll include the link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in looking into that too. And did we miss one of the... Um, reasons for weight loss resistance did you say like a nutrient imbalance mm -hmm. the last one yeah yeah so n nutritional deficiency okay and so a lot of people think when you say uh, nutritional deficiency you're talking about macronutrients right fats carbs proteins where in some very um 
poor countries, you will see children with these macronutrient deficiencies who are emaciated. They may have those huge bellies, but I'm talking about micronutrients. So 70% of us in the industrialized world actually have micronutrient deficiencies. If you're having health problems, it's more like 90%. Um, because of the high levels of toxicity that we've talked about, your body uses nutritional resources to do everything, right? To bat an eyelash, move a hand, <coughs> excuse me, to digest your food, to detoxify a chemical. And so because our bodies have such a high level of toxicity they have to dispose of, they are routinely using up these nutritional resources. So the RDA's recommended daily allowances that were created in the 1950s are no longer valid. You need way more B vitamins, for instance, way more magnesium, and all of the other micronutrients that are, are we need in our bodies for them to function. And so if you're just getting the RDAs, you're going to be in a nutrient deficient state. The body naturally wants to heal itself. And when given the proper environment, meaning the um, things that are preventing it from healing are removed and the tools that it needs to heal are given, the body will heal itself. So my simplistic philosophy is, Bad stuff out, good stuff in, balance everything. So you got to get the good stuff in, and those are nutrients. And there's testing that you can do to check for micronutrient deficiencies. And I've used a lot of them on myself and patients. Um, what I find is that most people, if they're having health problems and they haven't been supplementing, they need to take broad-based micro. Uh, multivitamin, mineral, nutrient supplements, and that testing is probably not the best use of money necessarily up front. For some people it is, and like I said, it's an individual basis. And when I say that, some people say, oh, well, I'm gonna take a women's one a day. No, that's not what I'm talking about, right? That's actually gonna make you more toxic. If you read the ingredient list, you will see all the toxins, artificial flavorings, colorings, and chemicals in there, and the paltry level of nutrients you're gonna be taking about 12, 10 to 12 loose fill capsules in a multivitamin mineral nutrient supplement that's worth its weight, right? Um, and so doing that high level repletion, some people are so deficient though when we do do the nutrient testing that they need intravenous nutrition. I was one of those and I've had many patients like that. Sometimes you just can't take enough supplements especially if your gastrointestinal tract is not functioning optimally, it's not breaking things down and absorbing them. If you have gut problems, you have leaky gut, for instance, then sometimes you just have to bypass the gut and put nutrients in a bag and put them right into your bloodstream where the, you can create such a high gradient of concentration across the cell wall that it just floods the cell with these nutrients and your cells go, oh, thank you. And then they have the tools that they need to go about repairing themselves, repairing their mitochondria, and healing your body. That's something that I've yet to try. I've never, I've done a lot of things. I've never done IV um, drips though. I'm so looking forward to doing that. I'm going to um, California in the summer and LA. It's going to be everywhere, isn't it? That's like the place everywhere. that, yeah, on every corner, there's going to be a place for me to yeah. try out. But I 
would just say one thing about that. So there are a lot of IV nutrient therapy has really made it into the mainstream. However, if you go to one of these storefront places that services anyone who walks in and it's not prescribed by a doctor, you are not going to get the same level of nutrients in your IV that we use in medical treatments, right? So usually like they'll give 500 milligrams of vitamin C, whereas with a lot of my patients, I give them 25, 50, or 100 grams. Whoa, okay. Compared to 500 milligrams. So, you know, I see, I've seen this a lot. I'm glad that it's made it into the mainstream, but Mm. people think that they're doing something and you are doing something But it's not, if you're really having serious health problems, you want to go to a doctor who can prescribe and do these uh, nutrient infusions. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for the tip. That's probably saved me some money and some time. And it's same with like supplements, isn't it? There's a big difference between the conventional brands that you can get on Amazon or in the, on the just regular supermarkets versus the high quality practitioner grade supplements that you and me use. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. The the potency and the purity and the standards to which they subject themselves. Supplements are not regulated by the FDA. And there are some supplement companies that voluntarily subject themselves to the same standards that pharmaceutical drugs do. Um, So you know that what it says is in there is in there and that it's pure and doesn't have contaminants. And so a lot, they're not, all supplements are not created equally. Yeah. And especially if you're dealing with a lot of that toxicity, you resonate with some of the things that we've been talking about. You don't want to be adding in another thing. You're trying to do a good thing, but you're adding in more toxic, more things for your liver to detoxify. So then it's not going to address your hormones and the endocrine disrupting chemicals that are going to be backlogged. So another good point there as well. And before we finish up- One more on that. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. I've even had patients who, um, and I- I carry supplements because there are a lot of supplements that can only be prescribed by a healthcare mm-hmm. practitioner. They, the company won't allow them to be just purchased in the general market. And I've worked with patients who three months, they're doing great. They're taking their supplements, they're getting better. And then they come back, you know, later and they're not doing as well and they start backsliding. And so I really take a, a, a magnifying glass. What are, what are you doing? What are you taking? Okay. Oh no, I'm not taking that. I found this brand on mm. Amazon. This and I'm like <laughs> it is not apples are not oranges. Um, and so it really can be the difference between you healing or not. Definitely. If you're going to spend your money and put the effort into taking supplements, you better just go in for the the good brands that'll save time and money in the long run. It may be a little bit more expensive upfront, but it will just be so much better for your body um, at the end of the day. So yeah, before we finish up, I always ask my guests a few more questions about you in particular. So the first one is, what's something that you do every day to stay in hormonal harmony? Oh my gosh, I do so many things. (laughs) I can imagine. My self-care, you know, it takes several hours a day. Meditate, number one, to help with my cortisol balance. It's essential. And I know people like, oh, Dr. Kieran with the meditation, yes. You know, there are hundreds, if not thousands of scientific uh, studies on the health benefits of Mm -hmm. meditation. One of my favorite is um, the one where they did head-to-head a single agent antihypertensive drug versus meditation on newly diagnosed hypertensive patients for three months. Meditation outcomes far exceed 
the okay. drug for treatment of hypertension. This is how good meditation is. This is how vital it is. This is how important it is. This is how powerful it is. And it's free. Even better. Free. <laughs> and accessible to everyone. Second question is, what's your go-to breakfast? So I know a lot of my listeners struggle. Maybe they're trying to be gluten-free and cut some of the um, processed carbohydrates out of their diet, but they're like, what do I have for, for breakfast? I don't want eggs every day. Uh, maybe you love eggs, but have you got any recommendations? I do love eggs, but I try not to eat one food every day because mm. that sets you up for sensitivity. Soup is my favorite breakfast. Okay. Interesting. Yes. Whether it's, um, you know, it could be a, a creamy green soup. I have this organic green soup I love, or it's a beef stew. It's great. It's usually low carb, low in the bad carbs, right? Um, and it's high in protein. You know, if you have a bone broth in there, you're getting those bone broth nutrients and goodies um, and usually lots of vegetables. And so it's great. It sets up your blood sugar and your cortisol to be nice and even throughout the day. Soup is great for breakfast. I love that you mentioned that as well, because people don't usually consider foods like that for breakfast. They like, no, it has to be sweet. It has to be cereal and carb based, but other cultures like in Japan, they'll eat things like that for breakfast. And yeah. you, once you start after a while, you're like, oh, it's not really, it's nothing different. It's just another meal at the end of the day. So um, soup is a great option. Sometimes I eat like lamb for breakfast or chicken and people think I'm crazy, but works for me. Right. And, you know, I think it gets back to what you were talking about earlier, how we are really molded by Madison Avenue and advertisements and our culture to what, how we're supposed to think about these meals. And who says that it has to be pastry and coffee with sugar and all these really, all of the things that we traditionally eat for breakfast, except for eggs, I'll say, mm. um, really imbalance our insulin and that unbalances our cortisol and it sets you up for what I call the blood sugar roller coaster. And that's just going to throw everything off. You will never get healthy if you keep eating these high carb breakfasts. So I love that you eat those things for breakfast. Agreed. <laughs> and is there one herb nutrient or supplement that you couldn't live without? So this might be a tricky one as well. You might have a whole cupboard full of supplements like I do, but is there one that you really love? I have to have my adrenal adaptogen mm. and it, mine has a combination of things like rhodiola, eleuthero, ashwagandha. And in my opinion, I think almost everyone needs to be on some type of adrenal adaptogen, not necessarily a glandular, right? So that's replacing cortisol, mm. but the herbs that will support your cortisol because most of us have so much stress in our lives, whether it's psychosocial stress, internal stress, chemical stress, whatever you, it comes from, that our bodies need ongoing support to, to keep it going. And I, I call it queen cortisol. She needs support to make you healthy. So that's what I would say. Yeah. And if cortisol is dominant, then you're never going to fully overcome the weight loss resistance and right. your skin issues and anxiety, because it really just wrecks a lot of um, your hormones. And I think Dr. Brooke as well describes cortisol as the, um, the hormone mess maker. So it really just goes in yeah. there and wrecks a lot of different systems. So I love that analogy. And last question is where can people find out more from you online and tell us about your amazing podcast and where they can find that too. Sure. They can find out more on my website, which is Kieran Dunstan, MD.com. And it's spelled K Y R I N 
Dunstan, D-U-N-S-T-O-N-M-D.com. And then my podcast is called Her Brilliant Health, and it is available on iTunes. And then I also post it on YouTube, and I have a lot of great YouTube videos also. Um, I did one about coffee enemas, and I'm going to do, be doing more and more about everyday things you can do to improve your health at home. I love to hear that because coffee enemas are my lifesaver at the moment. They are so effective. Yeah. They're <laughs> the best. People are usually scared off, but I'm glad that you're saying it as well. So it's not just me saying to my clients all the time, like, you need to try it. You need to try it. Listen to um, Kieran as well. She agrees. <laughs> it is the secret weapon for all health conditions for help to supercharging your detoxification. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would love to have you back on again. I'm sure there's so much more we can talk about, um, especially on the detoxification piece. That sounds like a really passion and passionate subject that you love to, to chat about me as well. I'm glad that we got to connect. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful being here. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.